0: Our study uh, haven't haven't fully decided this. Trying to figure out what the year is going to look like next year. Not the whole thing. Just Lord, what do you want to say? There's so, still so much from the patriarchs for us to to glean, and uh, we're up to Jacob. I, I really wanted to get get up to the life of Joseph. So I I my sneaking suspicion is that we'll be still dealing with the patriarchs into the uh, into next year, but. I, I want to do something a little bit different during the month of December. Yeah, each message is going to start with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. that's who we focused on this year. Um, uh, we still have some of the life of Jacob to cover, but uh, uh, but during this month of December, uh, on on each Sunday, I want I want to draw your attention to some particular feature each week in the lives of the patriarchs. And then, Uh, and then relate it to uh, and see how it gets fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's just interesting to see how these men serve as pictures, as types of Christ. Um, uh, Maybe one way to say it is that the lives of people in Scripture, like ours, are in some ways living epistles that were meant to be known and read by all men. Right, that's the way Paul says it. That that Christ can be seen in our lives, and so as we look at the lives of these uh, of these patriarchs, there are there are elements of their lives, there are features of their lives that point to, or that relate to, or are fulfilled in the purpose uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so during this month of December, as we move toward Christmas and we focus our attention on the birth of our Savior and on the person of Jesus Christ. I want to use the patriarchs to, to take us in that direction. Um, uh, hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, I think by the end of the morning you'll know what I'm talking about. So today, I want to focus on one of the features of the lives of the patriarchs that, that is then going to just get lifted and psh, we're going to plop ourselves in the New Testament and say, what does, what does the life of Christ tell us about this feature? If you would turn, I want to read, uh, I want to read a succession of, of verses real quickly. Uh, starting in Genesis 12. Genesis 12. Genesis 12, verse 2. This is God giving the promise to Abraham, and it starts, he says this and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So you shall be a blessing. I will, I will make you a great nation, and I will make your name great is what God said to Abraham. Chapter 24, chapter 24, verse 35. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 35. This is the servant that Abraham sent out to get a wife for his son Isaac. He's talking to the prospective family of, of the bride, and he says, and the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. So that he has become rich. Uh, verse 35, if, if you might have a, a different translation, but the note in my Bible, uh, and indeed the way that it reads in the King James, it says that that word rich means is actually literally great. The Lord has made him great. In this case, it means rich. The Lord has made him great and has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. The Lord has made him great. God has made my master great. In, in this case, in the sense of riches. Um, Genesis 26, verse 13. And the man became rich. This is talking about Isaac. The man became rich. The word is literally great. He became great. He became rich and continued to grow richer, greater, greater, until he became very wealthy. Again, the words they are great and greater. And then, chapter thirty and verse forty-three. Chapter thirty, <clears throat> verse forty-three. So the man. Now we're down to Jacob. We've seen it twice in Abraham. We've seen it once in Isaac, and now here we come to uh, chapter thirty, verse forty-three. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Now in this verse, the word great doesn't appear literally, but in the subject matter of being rich, the way the word great is used by, uh, uh, of his father and his grandfather, it's the same idea in this verse. Jacob is being blessed by the Lord and being made great in the sense of, of riches. Now, I want to focus on this subject of greatness. It's a, it's a, uh, a, um, uh, a one-thought message that we're going to look at in a variety of ways. And I, I hope it's going to end in something super practical that you can concentrate on and uh, put into practice throughout this month as you think about the person of Christ. Notice these three things about greatness. It's implied in chapter 30, verse 42. It's not there, but it's implied because the ways that great is used in the other passages about Abraham and Isaac is about wealth. And and the same is true here. It's talking about Jacob becoming great, becoming wealthy, and so so you think of this in the same way that you think about it with Abraham and Isaac, that God is blessing him, he's becoming great, he's becoming wealthy, and that brings up this point that there's this idea of patriarchal greatness, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and for them, it was earthly, it was physical, and it was material. They were growing rich. (laughs) God blessed them. They were getting stuff. They were more camels, more sheep, more donkeys. Please hear this. This is part of the problem with prosperity theology is that it borrows from old covenant thinking something that is not transferred into the new covenant. I don't mean by that that God doesn't bless his people in these days. I mean this. I mean the book of Hebrews is very specific about the fact that the former covenant had physical promises and earthly blessings provided to a covenant generationally covenant people. That the new covenant comes in and supersedes the old and gives us better promises. spiritual promises. We can trust that God will provide. But building a theology of wealth based upon the patriarchs is bad theology. It's a confusion of the covenants. It's a confusion of the covenants. Now, um, uh, so understand, the patriarchal greatness was earthly, it was physical, it was material. It was old covenant blessings. It's interesting, however, that all three of these men get their names listed in Hebrews 11. In the hall of faith, all three of these men are named, not just as wealthy men, but as men of faith. As men of faith. Men who by faith, and then fill in the blank for each of them, men who by faith did the things and held on to the promises that God had given to them. All three of them are men of faith. Men of notorious faith in their days. So so we can say this about them. This they're, they're great examples of, of greatness. They're wonderful examples of greatness. Um, not just the material greatness, but they're men of faith that we can learn from. So with this in mind, I want to focus on this subject of greatness this morning, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. The greatness of Jesus. Let's take this concept of greatness and let's step into the New Testament for a minute and ask ourselves... What does the New Testament teach us about greatness? And and first, in the person of Jesus Christ, and then secondly, as it applies to us as believers. How do we understand the idea of greatness? Well, let's start with what we're told in the Gospels. What does it say about greatness in the Gospels? I I, I do want to take a moment to read a few passages as we go go through this together. Um, First of all, in John chapter 4, in John chapter 4, Let me start reading in verse 7. So Jesus is talking to the woman that he finds at the well in Samaria. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob. (laughs) You see it? (laughs) You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, this is one of those New Testament passages that shows us the difference between New Covenant and Old Covenant, that the the greatness of Jacob was a well digger. He provided water to, to, to keep animals and people alive. And she asks him specifically the question, because Jesus says to her, I'll give you living water. Are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than Jacob? He gave us this water. That well's deep. You got nothing to draw. And Jesus is, the water I'm going to give you is a completely different kind. <laughs> it's something totally different. And let me tell you something, what I'm going to give you is way better than what he gave you, right? Are you greater than our father Jacob? And the answer Jesus gives is not, yes, I'm greater. The answer is, well, let's compare the kinds of water that each of us give. He gave you water that'll keep your animals alive. I'm going to give you water that'll give you eternal life. I'll give you this water. You see, this was physical. This was spiritual. This was a picture of something greater to come. Right? That greatness was small compared to this greatness. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Yep. Yes, Jesus is greater than the father Jacob was. Jacob's water was physical and temporal. Jesus' water was spiritual and eternal. Jesus Is as much greater than Jacob as eternity is to the drink of water that you'll take today. Drink of water could keep you alive if it was the last drink you had for what? Three, four, five days? The water that Jesus gives you will keep you alive for all eternity. For all eternity. That's how much greater Jesus is than Jacob. All right? Number one. Number two, John chapter 8. Turn over a few pages, John chapter 8, we see this subject come up again, starting in verse 52, John 8, verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself to be? "'Jesus answered, "'If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. "'It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. "'And you have not come to know him, but I know him. "'And if I say that I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, "'but I do know him and keep his word. "'Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day.'" And he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you, and you and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, and this should make your spine tingle, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> You're not greater than Abraham, are you? Before Abraham was, I am. How much greater is the eternal than the mortal. Abraham was a great man. Abraham was a great patriarch. Abraham was a wonderful man. But in this passage, we are confronted with the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? Yes, as much greater as I am is to one who's dead. Who can say I am? Right? They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly where those words came from. They knew exactly what the implication of those words were. And we know it because the next verse says, "Therefore they picked up thrones to stow at him, uh, uh, stones to throw at him." I said thrones to stow at him. They picked up stones to throw at him. Right? Why? Because it was blasphemy. It was a claim of divinity. I am eternally self-existent? That's what Jesus was claiming there. And as a result, they knew what the claim meant. They knew what he was saying, and they were going to stone him for blasphemy. Yes, he claimed to be greater than Abraham. I'm not going to read them, but you you can look up Matthew 12, 41, and 42. In those verses, Jesus claims to be greater than Jonah. I must admit that when I was studying this out and I'm reading through the verses, I'm kind of looking at it and going, I mean, this is This is just kind of giving away my thoughts on the prophet Jonah. It's like, okay, you're greater than Jonah. All right. I can think of a few other people that might fit that category too. But he also says greater than King Solomon. Uh-huh, okay, that's a little. <laughs> <laughs> right? But you get the point. You get to the New Testament and it's greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham, greater than a prophet, greater than a king. That's what it is. Greater than the patriarchs, greater than the prophets, greater than the kings. All of them are listed. This is our savior. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so that's the gospels. When you come to the book of Hebrews, which is um, which is the, the, the book that I've been happening to, to read in my devotions this week, the book of Hebrews. Here's what you see just real quickly outline as you go through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter one, Jesus is greater than the angels. That's chapter one. Jesus is greater than the angels. They are created beings and ministering spirits, but he is described as the very son of God who conquers Sin and Satan and death. He's greater than the angels. And so that's, that's Hebrews 1. In Hebrews 1, he's greater than the angels. In Hebrews 2, he's described as the son of God who conquers sin, Satan, and death as our savior. That's why he's so much greater than the angels. In Hebrews 3, in Hebrews 3 Jesus is described as being greater than Moses. So you, you look at this, and again, without, without taking too much time, Uh, You remember the words of John the Baptist when he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you, you read there at the beginning of John this statement about the Lord Jesus. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. These incredible statements that are made about our Savior, greater than the law, greater than Moses, and, and, Hebrews, and Hebrews makes this point that, that Moses was great, but he had the greatness of a faithful servant that lives in a house. While Jesus is the son who's the owner of the whole thing. That's his greatness. Moses is a faithful servant in the house. Jesus is the son who's... who's the inheritor of the whole thing, the one who owns the place—it's his house. So we see, we see in Hebrews this greatness of Jesus expressed, this greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ expressed. In Hebrews four, he's described as being greater than Joshua. Now, I would just take a second here. Um, It's interesting, right, because the name Joshua is an Old Testament version of the Lord Jesus, of Jesus' name, right? It's the, 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 the correlation between the languages and the, the Old Joshua, the, the New Testament, Jesus. You know, if you know your Bible history, Joshua is the one that leads God's people into the promised land to conquer the land of Canaan, and to bring them into their inheritance, right? That they might inherit the land that God had promised to them. And so he's a great man. He's a great figure. He's a great warrior. He's a great a great leader into battle. He's a he's a great man, Joshua is. I want to pause before I get to the second part of that. You know, we're told in Proverbs that a man who can rule his spirit is greater than a man who can conquer a city. I want you to think about that for a second. A man who can rule his own spirit is a greater man than the one who can conquer a city. You know, men, when we see a challenge in front of us, I think most of us would like to think that we'll, we'd be willing to rise to the occasion, take on whatever challenge we have to take on. We'd like to feel like we're competent, or at least that we're determined. We'll see that challenge. We'll meet it. But my brothers, the challenge that lives inside of here is a greater challenge than any you're ever going to face on the outside. Your biggest battles don't come from outside of you. Your biggest battles are on the inside of you. My biggest battles are on the inside of me. To rule your own spirit, to rule your own spirit, is likely to be a war that you're going to fight for the rest of your life. To grow in the ability to rule your spirit is the mark of a man who is becoming like Jesus. A man who, when he does not rule his own spirit, knows how to repent and seek forgiveness is growing in the likeness of Jesus. You may not succeed every time, but you have to know what to do when you fail. My brothers and sisters the ability to rule our spirits is a sign of greatness. It's greater than someone who can conquer a city. There's something about a challenge outside there that I can see that that I don't have to face anything about me that becomes a challenge I'll take. But my brothers and sisters, the challenges that require that humility of, Lord, search me and try me and see if there's some wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That challenge is the real challenge of a man or woman of God. And that battle is serious. That battle is serious. So when you're thinking about Joshua, this great man that can conquer a city, it's just fascinating, right, that that at the beginning of his work, the Lord, the Lord speaks to him and tells him, do not be afraid. Every place you set the f- sole of your foot is ground. That God speaks to him about the fear that could swallow him up, about the thing he's got to deal with inside here if he's going to be faithful to the thing God's called him to out there, right? Right? Greater is a man that can rule his own spirit. Now listen to the, please hear this. My sneaking suspicion is that with the number of people inside here today, there's someone here, there's someone here that, in this week, has failed to rule their spirits well in some way or another. You lost your temper? You said something you wish you wouldn't have said. You looked at something you wish you wouldn't have looked at. You did something you wish you hadn't done. I want to tell you this. We just received communion, and the reminder is if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You're not hopeless. Though Satan tempts me to despair, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. When I talk like this, it's not that you might feel condemnation and despair over your recent failures. It's that we might be reminded where the strength and the heat of the battle actually lies and to remind us, if you fail, you can get back up on that horse again. Get back up on your horse. Remember where the battle is. And the good news is this. The good news is that as we grow and learn to rule our spirits, that is the becoming like Christ that he has called us to. And I just want to encourage you. Don't get weary in well-doing. Don't give up the battle. You are not yet what you are going to be. And can I remind you that you are not now what you once were? <laughs> Amen? Amen? This is the battle, right? So greater than Joshua, greater than Joshua is the Lord Jesus Christ. Greater. Joshua leads the conquest of Canaan. But but what the writer of Hebrews says is this. He says, Joshua takes him in and through battle... They conquer enough land that they end up at rest. But it wasn't real rest. There was still another rest to come. And the rest to come was better than and greater than the rest that Joshua gave to them. There's another rest. And so this this writer of Hebrews says... Instead, while Joshua conquers Canaan, Jesus comes to conquer the powers of sin and death and hell and the grave, and he gives the kind of forgiveness of sins that gives rest to your soul, that brings peace to guilt and to shame, that brings forgiveness to our hearts, that allows us to find true rest. Allows us to find true rest. That's the greatness of our Savior, the true rest that you and I need. And the writer of Hebrews, listen, this, this whole idea of, of, of what Christ does provides for us forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. The writer of Hebrews, without works, without works, it's true rest. It's, I don't have to make up for my sins. It's not karma, it's grace. I am so glad that salvation is not by karma. (laughs) Man, am I glad. Amen? It's by grace through faith. By grace through faith. All right. Lastly, Hebrews, Hebrews 5, I'll stop here. Jesus is described as being greater than Aaron, being greater than the priest Aaron, the high priest Aaron. Why? Because while Aaron offers sacrifices for sins, he offers sacrifices for sins not only on behalf of the people, but on behalf of himself. He too was sinful. And so he has to offer sacrifices as a sinful man for sinful people. So he offers sacrifice, but the Lord Jesus comes along and without sin not only offers a sacrifice, but offers himself in all of his sinlessness as the sacrifice. Aaron never put himself on an altar. Jesus goes to the cross. Aaron, as a sinful man, can't put himself on the altar. He didn't qualify. Jesus, the sinless son of God, allows himself to be hung on a cross as our perfect sacrifice, and in doing so, he establishes a new covenant with better promises. The Lord Jesus Christ, greater than the high priest Aaron. Greater by far. Greater by far. So this is, what, this is what Scripture, this is what the New Testament has to teach us. The Gospels, Jesus greater than Jacob, greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets, greater than the kings. Hebrews, greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua greater than Aaron, greater than each one of them, greater than a lawgiver, greater than a general, greater than a high priest, Jesus, greater than him, pick an office, Jesus is greater than. All of them, he's greater than. And so you come to the New Testament and you come to the life of Christ and you say, maybe the greatest one of all has something to teach us about greatness. Maybe he can teach us something about greatness. What is greatness according to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I mean, you probably already know the answer to this. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to refer you to scriptures that are just so well known by, by Christians that have been around for a little while. But let's remind ourselves for a second this morning. In Matthew 20, starting in verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is Jesus' description. This is not mine. This is Jesus' description of greatness. Notice these three things about Jesus' description of greatness. The first one here from from Matthew 20 is that that at, at some point this just needs to be expected by us. The Christian perspective of greatness is different than the world's perspective of greatness. Shocker, I know. But the way the world defines greatness is different than the way the church describes, defines greatness. We're strange people. Let's accept it. Let's embrace it. Let's, Let's take it, right? We're different. We're strangers in a strange land. Jesus says the way it works in the heathen world, the way it works in the Gentiles, is great men with power exercise authority over others. That's not the way it works with you. That's not the way it works for you. Can I tell you something, men? If you're having to remind your wife that you're the the, the man and the leader, then I just want to inform you of what you seem not to know. You're not leading anybody anywhere. If you have to insist and tell everybody, if you have to claim the power of position, you're using the tools of the world and I'm not going to argue that you're 100% wrong. I'm just telling you that you're doing it because you're grasping at straws. You don't need to walk around telling everybody who you are and why they should fight. Fo- no. No. That's not the way this works. The Lord Jesus said, you don't do this the way the Gentiles do. You don't lord over them. Their great men exercise authority over them. Oh, they're the great ones, and they insist, and they have authority and they tell. It's not so among you. It's not so among you. You're different than the rest of the world. Greatness in the church is marked by servanthood. It's marked by servanthood. It's marked by things like sacrifice, laying down your life, which is what Jesus refers to in verse 28. It's marked by a very different spirit. Greatness in the church is marked by servanthood, by the placing of others above ourselves. And so the third thing we see in this passage is that our example is Jesus. Our example is Jesus. He says, says, it's not so among you. Whoever wants to be great, let him become your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. If any of you took the SAT... And you remember going through those exercises where this is to this as this is to this? That's what Jesus is doing here. It's servanthood is to greatness, or or, or, um, uh, what I'm doing in sacrifice, what I do in sacrifice is what you do in service. And that's what greatness is. You want to know what greatness is among you? Look at me. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. Our example is Jesus. And so he defines greatness for us in this way. If you want to be great, you serve. You serve all. I just want to pause here real quickly. How many of you find that hard to believe? How many of you find it hard to remember? You know what you have to do? You actually have to believe that there's a God who sees service and will reward it someday. Because you don't feel great when you're serving. You don't feel like you're somebody special, right? You don't feel like you're great, right? That's the challenge of it. It's, this is what he sees as greatness. Matthew 25. Matthew 25 Verses 14 through 30, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them, and to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability, and and he went on his journey. Oh boy, I don't have time. I remember the parable of the talents. (laughs) It's It's in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. Look it up. See it as I read, as I, as I go there. I don't have time to read the whole thing. Uh, i got to pay attention a little bit to the clock. Parable of the talents. Notice these three things about the parable of talents. If you remember, he gives talents, and then based upon what they do with the talents, he rewards them for what they do with the talents. So notice these three things. One, there's a kingdom that belongs to God, and it's not of this world. There's a kingdom that belongs to God, and it's not of this world. That's why in the previous text Jesus said, "Greatness is not the same way, it's not the same thing among you as it is among the Gentiles. My kingdom is different. The way my rulership operates, it's different. It's a different kingdom. It's an entirely different kingdom. There's a kingdom it belongs to God and it's not of this world. The second thing is that in the kingdom of God, we remember that there are rewards available to us." Now, I talked about this a, lot, a little bit in Sunday school. I, I can't do it too much uh, here. God doesn't owe us this, but this is just a precious thing, that, that he entrusts us with service on his behalf, and then faithful service means that he will reward his servants. He will reward his servants one day. There is a reward to be looked forward to, I I really believe that he offers us this reward because service is hard. It's not easy to serve. It's not easy to be a servant. But he reminds us that there's this reward as a way of encouraging us and motivating us to a life of service. And this last one is simply that the reward is based on faithful servanthood. The reward is based on faithful servanthood. Can I ask you a question? When you serve, how many of you ever wonder? Does anybody notice? How many of you ever had? Beyond? How many of you ever had the thought cross your mind? Does anybody notice what I do? You ever had the thought cross your mind? Anybody notice? Anybody appreciate this? Right. Well. We human beings don't always do well. Sometimes, I I, I wish I could tell you differently. Sometimes the truth is nobody noticed. (laughs) Except that God always does. So it becomes a question of who you're doing it for. If you're doing it for the acclaim of people, sometimes people don't notice. Right? Right? I can't, I mean, I could do this all day long almost, you know? Um, uh, Karno mentioned the wrestlers, Lois. We got musicians that are up here every Sunday. We got youth leaders that do their thing with the youth. We got Stacy leading missions trips. You know, they talk about the, the, 80 20 rule we're in churches 80 percent of the people do 20 percent of the work i think that's flipped in this congregation i really do and i don't i don't mean this. frank it's just i i, I can't i can't i really can't look at anybody without seeing someone who serves somewhere it's amazing servanthood servanthood is a markness. as a mark of greatness in the kingdom of god as a mark of greatness in the kingdom of god Listen, there's a reward that is coming to you on the basis of that faithful service to the Lord. All right, I have to close with this. I am watching. Closing with this. Jesus' ultimate example. When you think about greatness, and now we've gone through this enough to see that greatness ends up being defined by servanthood, by the voluntary placing of yourself in service to others. Jesus' ultimate example is given to us in the book of John. And I find this, I, I find this particularly amazing because I'm not saying this is exact, but this is one way you could kind of think about it. That if Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of focusing on Jesus' humanity, his personhood here on earth. John is kind of focusing on the greatness of the Lord Jesus as divine, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's, and it's this, this um, these things have I written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and, and right, all these, these big, grand ideas. And in John's gospel, this this book that emphasizes the Lord Jesus in just a little bit different way, you you come to John chapter 13, and you read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them to the end. I've said this before. It's one of my favorite. Like every time, I'm, every time I turn, I'm reading through John. I come to, to this. and I, I, Here it is. I'm going to read that verse again. Right? He knows that he's coming to the time when he's going to depart out of this world. And then it says, having loved his own that were in, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Such an awesome statement. He loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Can you imagine? The one who knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. He knows that that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. What is that? What is that? Let me tell you what that is. That's the greatest one ever demonstrating the most menial service ever. The biggest step down anyone ever took was knowing that you came from God and you were going back to God, getting on your knees, washing and drying off someone's feet. It's amazing. It's amazing. Listen, when I read it and I think about it, I end up saying to myself something like this, who do you think you are? Like, you who complain about what? you think somebody should notice if you serve? What, what, what? Who do you think you are? I haven't done anything like that. I haven't done anything like that. The servant of all defines greatness in his kingdom and here it is that he gives this example. It's the example given Jesus washing his disciples' feet. We read his teaching. We read what he said about it. The beauty of the Lord Jesus is he doesn't, doesn't just say it. He does it. He does it. He gives us the example of it. At the end of the day, it's not what you do. It's, it's not what you say. It's what you do. It's what you do, not what you say, right? That's, that's this, this life of living it out. He washes the disciples' feet. The second thing we see is the example applied. Jesus sets the example in verses 1 through 5, 12 through 14. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I have done to you? And then he explains. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. I mean, that's stunning stuff right there. That's stunning stuff right there. It's the example applied. He does what he does. He sets the example. He gives it, and then he applies it. If the one that we call teacher and Lord acts in this way, it is incumbent upon us to follow his example. You and I are supposed to live this out. And that's where I just close with this. Please notice on the, on the PowerPoint, it's example given, it's example applied, and then it's example followed? <laughs> You know why? Because nobody can make you do it. Nobody can make you do it. It's up to you. It's up to you. It's up to you. It's up to me. It's up to us to ask the question, has this spirit of Jesus, this spirit of greatness, has it filled my heart so much to transform me and to turn me into the servant of all? Turn me into one who would be willing to wash the feet of those that according to the world would be viewed as inferior to me. Is that that who I am? Is that the spirit that marks me? This is up to us. Can I point out that this view of greatness is a kingdom essential? It's a kingdom law of the highest order. This is the way God is measuring things. This is the way God is looking at things. And please hear this. Please hear this. If you want to think about it this way, there's like these high-level truths. These high-level truths. How many of you agree that when Jesus does this example and tells us that this is the way we should treat one another, that this would be like a high-level truth that all Christians must understand. This is a kingdom principle that applies to all of us. Do we agree? Like this is all of us. I'm just saying it this way. Please remember that when we get to things that are super that, that come under this, things like, things like um, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, that that scripture is not a scripture that means the husband's the head and is in this position, therefore those under him are supposed to serve him. Let's not forget that when God speaks to men and tells them, this is the way this works, wives, submit your hu-. he speaks to the men and says, Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and sacrificed himself for her, gave himself for her. Now, please hear this. I'm not suggesting that what the Bible says about the way a family works, the way a marriage works, is not not legitimate. I'm just saying this, that the spirit in which all this is lived out Is a spirit that recognizes the voluntary nature of this. It's not a, I'm the man, so you obey. It's this, we are called to serve one another. We are called to serve one another. And I am no less called to be a servant and to lay down my life for you than you are called to submit yourself to me. Here's what I'm saying. We have to remember that the the practical things, the ways in which Scripture instructs us to live are all understood under these kind of big umbrella concepts that in the kingdom of God, the greatest one is the servant of all. I I would just say it this way. Men, God has called us as leaders to the ultimate positions of servant leadership, To lay down our lives for the people that God has called us to care for. To lay down our lives for them. To, like Jesus, love them to the end and wash their feet. This is the example that our Lord set for us. Oh, you know, if we need to talk about decision-making and all that, there's a time and a place to do that. Here's what I'm driving at that I think is so vital. It's that we remember That, yeah, this is kind of nebulous, but I'm going to use the terminology anyways. The spirit that marks us as humans, the spirit that marks us as children of God, there should be a fragrance of servanthood about us, a fragrance of humility about us that makes this whole thing between husbands and wives, sacrificing and submitting, it makes it, it makes it not only doable, but joyful. Because we're giving ourselves to each other voluntarily in ways that are sacrificial, and in ways that are submissive, and it comes together in a way that's satisfying to both and beautiful in the eyes of the world and precious in the sight of God. We are God's people. And this idea of greatness through servanthood applies to all of us, men, women, all of us, church leaders, all of us, it applies to us all, so as you celebrate Christmas, and you remember the Lord Jesus, remember his greatness, remember what marked his greatness, remember what it looked like, remember what he taught, remember what example he gave, and please hear this, because you're going to hear this more than once, and let this spirit that was in Christ Jesus be in you, who, though he was God, did not consider it something to be grasped, did not consider it robbery, to be, but, but made himself of no reputation and humbled himself, takes upon himself the form of a servant. Let this spirit that was in Christ Jesus be the spirit that fills us this Christmas season, the greatness of servanthood. And let your God reward you when it's done. Amen? Because he will. Because he will. All right. Lord, thank you. A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. A wonderful Savior is he. Thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. Lord, remind us of your greatness. Remind us of your greatness. Karna, would you come to the piano? Do you mind? Oh, let's let's stand together. I'll finish praying in a second. Would you just sing one song? It's like 1135. I'm watching, I know. I'm taking advantage. I'm pushing it. But would you just sing one song with me that focuses on this idea of greatness? And it, your singing was so good before. We don't always close with a song. But let's sing of the greatness.